If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Almost every society that we do anything about appears to have had some kind of a greed notion of its own story, its place in the world, how it relates to the past, the future, and to the cosmos. And that narrative is a very important part of how most societies define themselves and how they function. That was Neil McGregor talking about the role of religion in history. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Back in 2010, the British Museum and BBC Radio 4 joined forces to create a radio series entitled A History of the World in 100 Objects. It was the beginning of a fruitful partnership that has since produced further series on subjects including Shakespeare and Germany. For the next stage in their collaboration, the two institutions are tackling the history of religion through Living with the Gods, which begins on BBC Radio 4 next Monday, the 23rd of October. And the accompanying exhibition, entitled Living with Gods, kicks off at the British Museum on the 2nd of November. Presenting the series is Neil McGregor, the former director of the British Museum, who also fronted all the previous series. Our staff writer Ellie Cawthorn headed to the British Museum to meet Neil and discuss the themes of living with the gods. Neil also went on to describe a few of the fascinating objects that will appear in the exhibition and series. So, of course, Neil, you've been working in collaboration with the British Museum and Radio 4 on a major new project, Living with the Gods, which explores the role of religion 
throughout world history. Can you give us a bit of an idea of the scope and the ideas behind the project? The basic idea was that almost every society that we do anything about appears to have had some kind of agreed notion of its own story, its place in the world, how it relates to the past, the future, and to the cosmos. And that narrative is a very important part of how most societies define themselves and how they function. And that seemed a very interesting thing to focus on from the British Museum. Because in the British Museum, there are objects from societies all around the world and from over the last uh, many thousands of years. So what we thought would be a good way to come at this would be to take objects that speak of how a society thinks about its place in the cosmos and what that has meant for the society. Obviously, it's not a history of religion, because you can't tell a history of religion. It's certainly not a history of world religion through the whole of time. It's 30 questions that come from objects in the British Museum. And what we've been trying to do is to keep asking that question. What does it mean for a society to live with the gods, the spirits, the forces that shape the world? How do people not just worship the gods, but how do they live with them? Can you give us some examples of some of the questions, those 30 questions that you're looking at, and the ways in which studying objects can help enlighten those questions? One of the obvious uh, questions that you might ask would be, how do societies think about the forces that protect them? Uh, most societies have the notion of a spirit, a god, whatever we like to call it, looking after them. Now, if you look at the British Museum, there are two very, very interesting examples of the same phenomenon at very different times. So we have little statues of the goddess Artemis, Diana, who protected the city of Ephesus. And the goddess had her great shrine there. And pilgrims would go and take away little cheap souvenir statues. And we've got them in the British Museum. Mm -hmm. And it's a very good example of a whole city, a state, under the protection of a goddess. And she really looks after it. She runs the show. And for centuries, she is what it means to be a citizen of Ephesus. It's beyond the protection of Diana. If you compare that with Mexico in the 19th and 20th century, with Our Lady of Guadalupe, this image of the Virgin, which appeared to a young Mexican boy uh, in the 16th century, has become the patron saint, the protectress of the whole of Mexico. And if you go to her shrine at Guadalupe, you buy little souvenir images of the Virgin of Guadalupe to take home. And to be a Mexican is still to be somebody protected by Our Lady of Guadalupe. These are very interesting things to compare because over thousands of years distance and with a pagan pre-Christian cult in, Eastern, in the Eastern Mediterranean and a Roman Catholic cult in Mexico, you wind up with very, very similar patterns of how a society has chosen to live with and under the protection of a goddess. What is so interesting about this is that, of course, the little objects, the statues 
allow you to see how people lived with this goddess. You might think of a protecting goddess as something hugely remote, uh, of whom you would be frightened, who would inhabit a different realm. But whether we're talking about the ancient Mediterranean uh, two and a half thousand years ago or modern Mexico, you have images of the goddess that you take home with you. She lives with you. You live with her. That's the kind of thing we've been looking at. When we spoke to the historian Marina Warner, who's very interested in mother goddesses, virgin goddesses, what's interesting is that both these goddesses are virgins, but also protectors of mothers particularly and of families. And speaking to Marina Warner, uh, I asked her, what's the equivalent today? And her answer was, Princess Diana is the nearest phenomenon of a figure that is remote, but came to represent a certain kind of compassion, care, attention. And the shrine to Princess Diana that has arisen in Paris on the site of her death is, in a very real sense, a popular shrine to an idea of love and compassion. So these objects are, in a sense, a way of drawing parallels between religions across the world and throughout history, would you say? Are there any other themes that you, you can see recurring throughout? Another one, another theme that I think emerges very frequently is that the divine is present only when the whole community is present, not only with particular people, not only in a particular place. And two examples I think are very interesting about that. If you look at the way the Zoroastrians uh, regard fire, the Zoroastrians who are now mostly concentrated um, around Mumbai and in Western India, believe that the nearest approach to God we can have is through fire. Not that God is fire, but through fire, the purity of fire, the immateriality of fire, the power of fire, we can get an idea of God. So they have fire temples where a sacred fire is kept constantly lit. But that fire has to be made of fires from every part of the community. Fires from the poor, from the baker, from the metalsmith, from the priest, from the warrior, from the king. God will be present only, or God can be approached only if the whole community is brought together symbolically in the fire. And that is a very powerful image. And you get something very similar in Calcutta, in the annual celebration of the goddess Durga, the Durga Puja. Durga is a warrior goddess, but she's also a goddess that looks after you and comes and sorts out evil. And she comes once a year and you make, every community makes out of clay a statue which she can inhabit for the days she's with you. But that statue has to be made out of clay from all over the community. And the priest has to go to the house of the prostitute to ask for earth to go in to the statue so that the whole of the community, again, symbolically, is there and only that is a proper vehicle to receive and to carry the divine. 
Another thing that you examine in the series is the role of holy places from the Vatican to the Ganges, for example. What role have they played throughout time? And also, what have been some of the consequences for these places and the people who've lived there? One of the very interesting things that you can compare through objects is the different notion of how or where you can make contact with the divine. For, for all societies, there's a sense that you need to do certain things to make it easier for you to address God or you to be in touch with the gods or the spirits. That may be certain kinds of rituals of praying or preparing yourself, uh, or it may be that in particular places, access is easier, the barriers are fewer, uh, the great places of pilgrimage. So one of the objects we have, uh, one of the series of objects we have about that in the British Museum are pilgrim badges uh, from the Middle Ages. Uh, little cheap badges, mostly made of lead, that you put on your hat or you put on the shelf at home to remind you that you had once been in a particularly holy place. What that shows you is how important it is for people to have places where they feel they can be particularly close to the divine. Uh, and the wife of Bath, amazingly, in 14th century England, had been three times to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is, of course, a very particular place. It's a place where people of the three Abrahamic faiths have always felt was a particular place in which to worship. And therefore, when you have places like that, they become very contested when different faiths claim the same place as a holy place. So what should be a place of everybody gathering for one purpose becomes a place of contention. And that's one of the questions we're looking at as well in the series. As you mentioned earlier, the central theme of religion shaping social groups underlies the whole series. But it's not always been an easy marriage, has it? Perhaps you could talk a little bit about the times in which religion has come into conflict with other social forces. The object shows again and again that agreeing on a shared story of where you sit in the cosmos, the universe, how that relates you, the community, to the divine, to the spirits, is an enormously strong bonding force. Because what it does is allow every individual to have a story in which the community will go on even though they don't. So belief and belonging, believing and belonging are very closely connected. Now that means obviously that when you have people living together with different believings and different belongings, those are going to come into tension. And it also means that particularly central states will find it very difficult when a state wants to impose one way of belonging, then a different believing will be seen as a great challenge. And we have two absolutely fascinating objects of almost exactly the same date that show that point. The 1680s, France is becoming the most strongly centralized, coherent state in Europe. And it decides there's only one way to be French, and that is to be Catholic. And so the Protestants who have already been 
discriminated against have already been uh, coerced into converting are made to convert. Uh, you are not allowed to be Protestant any longer in 1685. And we have... Uh, very powerful, very disturbing print in the British Museum celebrating the destruction of the Protestant church just outside Paris. This was a very famous building by a great architect and the king celebrates the destruction of a building in his own state as one of the conquests of his reign. A very powerful image. At almost exactly the same date, you have we have in the museum an inscription from Japan. Japan is also becoming a very strongly central, centrally organized, powerful state in the second half of the 17th century. And in the 1680s, the Japanese state decides it will complete the removal of Christianity. Christianity had arrived with the Jesuits, had for a century been very powerful. By the 1680s, there are very few Christians left but the central Japanese state wants to show, just like the French state, that you cannot be Japanese and Christian. And this is a notice board that was put up at bridges along the roadside, like a motorway hoarding now, telling you the rewards you would get, huge rewards, for denouncing Christians. Two objects from the opposite sides of the world, exactly the same date, exactly the same phenomenon a powerful state that wants to be a unitary state doesn't allow you to have a different belief. That's the kind of question that the objects let you raise. For our world today, it's a question we need to keep asking. And we need to keep looking at different ways this problem has arisen, how it's been understood, how people have reacted. It's quite clear that religion is again absolutely in the centre of the political debate. We don't have a habit of thinking about what is the proper connection or what is the historic connection between a belief system and a political structure. Another strand is, of course, the difficult um, balancing act between, between gods, essentially, um, whether you want many gods, one god, and, of course, the move to atheism. Different societies have found different ways of understanding the forces of the world and how one should engage with the world. For some of the societies we're looking at, those forces are entirely or essentially local, particularly the beliefs of the islanders in the Pacific, where the narratives about the world that you inhabit are narratives of that world. They are local and it's these are the spirits, the forces with whom you share your landscape, with whom you share your world. This is to us a very alien way of thinking about who you share the world with. The, the non-human, non-animal forces with whom you share the world. It does, of course, change the way you think about the world very profoundly. And we have, fortunately, very close connections with some islands in the Pacific through the scholars in the British Museum. And we want 
to include that way of thinking about religion. Most British people are used to thinking of religions as very structured things with a text and possibly a hierarchy and buildings and a doctrine. Um, this is by no means the norm. And that's one area that we want to address. The word gods is very difficult. And this is one of the things that is very important. Our language has words only for the religious notions that we have encountered. And this is very difficult. When we say a god, most of us think of some kind of a person with some kind of job description. <laughs> um, this is, of course, the Greek and Roman way. It's, in a sense, the Abrahamic way. It's, of course, a completely inappropriate way to think about the forces who are sharing a landscape with you or how you articulate your relationship to the animal world. Our word spirit sounds a little wispy, uh, whimsy. And this is a real problem for this series and for the exhibition and for these conversations. Our language addresses only our experience. And to find words to articulate those other experiences is one of the major challenges. For a lot of the world, the whole notion of gods is actually not the proper starting place. And it was one of the most difficult decisions about the title of this exhibition and of this series, because there are no words that cover the whole thing. Living with gods, spirits, notions of place, uh, it doesn't quite work. So we opted for the clumsy living with the gods. Within the text-based religions, the, the, the more organized religions, um, clearly some of those faith structures have notions of several gods, many gods, others of only one. That leads you into very interesting differences. There's clearly, in ancient Mesopotamia, which we can document very well, of course, in the British Museum, uh, a growing sense that as the political structure moves towards control by one person, something approaching monarchy, then the pattern of the gods appears to move in a similar direction, that one god becomes as were the, 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 the head god. Uh, and that's a pattern that does appear to match a political evolution. The other tradition in the Middle East is that there is one god and only one god, and that that god is totally separate from physical experience. There is no statue, there's no image, uh, the god that is the, the, the god of Judaism, of Christianity and of uh, Islam. Um, and those are very different gods. The, uh, one of their characteristics, and particularly in, particularly in Islam, is that, of course, this god need not be anywhere, is everywhere, can be worshipped everywhere. So they are much, it's not perhaps surprising that 
Christianity and Islam are the religions that have spread most uh, dramatically. You also include atheism and alternatives to religion. Why did you think it was important to include those in an exhibition that is about religion? The exhibition is about believing. (laughs) (laughs) And it's about a belief structure and a social structure. Uh, For most of history, that is you could describe that as religion. But in 1793 in France, it became about something completely different. When France abolishes religion and puts in its place, first of all, the cult of the supreme being, then the cult of reason, and tries to find a different faith structure, which is not a conventional religion. That's a very interesting phenomenon. They don't move to no religion. They invent a new one. And it's a new one given by the state, shaped by the state, exactly as you would expect in that French tradition. And everybody will now believe this. And this is what will hold the state together. So it's a demonstration of, I think, the desire for strong states particularly to have a belief system that matches the political one. And as they discard the Catholic Church and the monarchy, they need to construct a new one. That is, of course, mirrored very interestingly in the 1920s in Soviet Russia, where the move, very comparably from a political structure with a monarchy and a church, to a totalitarian dictatorship, Um, and what? State atheism. But it's state atheism. It's not just that people don't believe. The Soviet state clearly still feels the need to have an official belief structure, even if it's atheism. And because this series is not about individual beliefs and whether you or I believe in God or atheist, agnostic or Buddhist or uh, Jewish, the focus of the series is about what states do with this. So no religion is a very essential part of how believing, belonging, the state and faith fit together. So what do you hope that visitors to the exhibition or listeners to the series will take away from it? I hope that the... that what people will take away from this is the enormous complexity of the question, but the different ways in which every society has addressed it. Every society has had to ask itself questions about its narrative. What is the story of us as a community, greater than me as an individual, about our place in time and in the world? Every society has done this. Every society has come to a view. Most societies have come to one shared, coherent view. Some of those can coexist. Um, India is a very remarkable example of how they coexist. Sometimes they're in conflict. And we can see in the Middle East at the moment what that can mean. Most of us in Europe have been brought up really with access only to the monotheisms or to some of the great world religions 
um, like Hinduism, Buddhism from outside that, that are now part of British life, to think about the other patterns and to compare dead religions with living ones. These are, I think, helpful ways to let us think about how we can address this question, which is now a central question for us all as citizens. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Following the interview, Neil picked out some of the most interesting objects that will appear in the series and exhibition to describe for us. What we're looking at is a knife. It's a stone blade, which has been uh, very carefully sharpened, to uh, very carefully chipped to give sharp edges and a sharp point. And there's a wooden handle. And the black wooden handle is inlaid with turquoise and with red shell and white shell. When you look at it more closely, you realise that actually the handle is a figure kneeling. And, in fact, it's a figure wearing the head of a bird. It's a man wearing an eagle mask, an eagle headdress. What you're looking at is an Aztec eagle warrior, the highest caste of warriors in Aztec Mexico before the Spaniards arrived around 1500. And this is the stone knife which would have been used to remove the heart from a sacrificial victim. This is uh, an object which shows in itself how the Aztec Empire worked, because the turquoise comes from uh, hundreds of miles away from the place where the shell comes from. So you can only make this in an empire that can command the resources. So it's an imperial object, it's a religious object, it's a military object. And we all know about the sacrifice of the Aztecs, the heart being removed while the victim was alive. What is interesting is that this was used in a way to honour the victim. And because the victim in these sacrifices was one selected victim in the context of a war, usually. Rather than destroy a whole army, maim hundreds of people and kill others, the Aztec model was to take a few selected people and sacrifice them. So you can argue, and our curator Jago Cooper does argue, that this is actually a way of limiting the suffering of war. This is, if you like, doing the same thing as we try to do with the Geneva Convention. It's a very good example, I think, of an object that takes you into a completely different way of thinking about the world. Many religions in the world have an idea that pilgrimage is important. 
pilgrimage takes you out of the safety of your daily life. And particularly before the 20th century, it cost you a great deal of money and it was very dangerous. It was very uncomfortable and it was quite dangerous. You were at the mercy of what happened. And to be a pilgrim in the Middle Ages was not only to be in great discomfort, but to be in real danger that you would be robbed, killed, murdered, die of disease, never come home. And it's a pattern of many, many religions, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, as many others. The value of leaving your safe world, focusing on a spiritual world, a spiritual goal, and then when you come home, you are a different person and you live differently. But what you're looking at here is a medieval pilgrim's souvenir. It's a tiny bottle made of lead, um, like a little tiny scent bottle. It's made of lead and it's been sealed at the top. And on it, there are two saints. And in it is water or oil that's been poured over relics in Jerusalem. Because when you went to Jerusalem or any of the other great shrines where there were relics, what you hoped to be able to bring back, if you were very grand, if you were an emperor or a king, you might bring back a relic. <laughs> but what you, we, might hope to bring back, it was a little bit of liquid that had been poured over the relic and then gathered. So we could bring back some of the holiness from the place. And this comes from Jerusalem. It was made there uh, somewhere around 1400 and was brought back to England. For, for many people, and probably for most of history, your relationship with the gods, with the world beyond yourself, was very much about the natural environment on which you depended. Uh, you needed to find a way of ensuring that the crops grew every year. You wanted to do what you could to ensure that the animals on whom you fed came back regularly. Uh, did you know that the, were the reindeer going to return? Were the fish going to come back? Were the birds going to reappear after the winter? All those things are very important. And every society that depended on the natural world in this way had ways of acknowledging that dependence and the proper part that we as humans had to play, that we had obligations in the great cycle of existence in which both sides were present. The object that shows this very clearly in the British Museum is a wonderful parka. It looks like one of those uh, transparent raincoats that you see tourists wearing um, in European cities in the summer. Uh, and it's exactly that. It's, uh, it's to keep out the rain and the wind, and it's made entirely of seal intestine. The intestine of the seal uh, split, dried, and then stitched together uh, with uh, other parts of the seal to hold it together. It's an extraordinary way of using the whole body of the seal. 
as you can imagine, seal fat and blubber was used for eating. The meat was eaten. The blubber was used for lamps, for oil. But because of the respect that the Yupik people in Alaska had for the seal, one of the ways you had to show that respect was that every part of the seal had to be used. If you were going to do something so serious as kill a seal, then all of it had to be used and honoured in that way. But much more than that, the seals know what is going on. You have to remember that they are sentient as well. They know what we think. You don't talk about killing a seal. You don't talk about seals in an offensive way. You treat them as though they were, because they are, part of your community. And if you have to hunt a seal and kill it, you stay with it till it dies and you offer it water. Every winter, the bladder of the seal, which is kept carefully, is returned to the water to be able to tell how it was treated, how it was honoured, so that the giving of the seals of themselves will continue. It's a very powerful way of articulating a truth that we've lost, that the animal world requires attention, consideration, thought, and respect from us in a way that our culture has effectively lost. That was Neil McGregor. Living with the Gods begins next Monday, the 23rd of October, at 9.45am on BBC Radio 4. Living with Gods opens at the British Museum on the 2nd of November. Find out more details at britishmuseum.org. And the accompanying book, written by Neil McGregor, is due to be published next March by Alan Lane. And you can read a written version of this interview in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now, and also features articles on Richard III, the Battle of El Alamein, the Russian Revolution and a whole lot more. OK, so that's about it for today, but please do listen in on Thursday when we'll be talking to Hannah Gregg and John Cooper about the gunpowder plot. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 